your odds of being right or eventually right is likely higher. And so you want to flex your position up within each new data point that comes out that confirms your thesis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Fred Liu. So Fred is the director and managing partner of Hayden Capital, where he invests in a concentrated strategy of companies that are really benefiting from big moats and tailwinds. So in this one, we talk all about his investment strategy from his portfolio management to how he finds companies and everything in between. Enjoy this one with Fred Liu. On this episode of the Investing City podcast, we are really happy to have Fred Liu. So thanks for being here, Fred. My pleasure. I appreciate uh, you having me on. Awesome. So I'm pretty curious, whenever I talk to investment people, what was the first stock you ever bought? I I guess there's two answers to this one. Um, The first stock I ever owned was uh, Walmart. And actually, basically for Christmas one year when I was 11 years old, uh, my dad gave me 15 uh, shares of Walmart. And so every time we'd walk into a Walmart store, he'd be like, hey, you know, you own that shelf over there with that door, right? And I'd be like, Sweet, I want to take it home with me. And literally since that point onwards, uh, it, it's, I've caught the investing bug. Um, and so that was probably the, the first stock I ever owned, but technically I didn't buy it myself. Um, the first stock I ever bought um, the first real stock I ever bought, I'd say, with significant money was during freshman year. Uh, I was managing uh, my parents' uh, retirement portfolio, and it was during the financial crisis when I was still in college. And so I was looking into a company called SL Green. And so SL Green is a New York City-based uh, REIT, and you know they own really high-quality uh, commercial properties in the city. And so I was just going through their 10Ks, their annual reports, trying to figure out what is the actual value of uh, their properties on a per square foot basis, even during those type of uh, crisis or fire sale type prices. And what I was finding was in the private markets, there were still bidders out there for these properties and they were going for a call at 70 bucks a square foot. And, you know, they had some liquidity issues and people were afraid that they weren't be able to make a, you know, certain payments, but I thought that they could liquidate some of their properties and be able to, um, you know, solve that issue. And so uh, we, we were buying it between like eight and 12 bucks. Um, and yeah, it, it did pretty well in, in the years following. So I'd say that's, that's the first real stock that I bought with uh, a lot of due diligence behind it. Wow, that's amazing. So let's backtrack here for a second. So you're a freshman in college, <laughs> you're managing your parents' retirement fund in the financial crisis. Tell us about that. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we can even go a bit earlier. So, you know, like I mentioned, I got gifted my first stocks when I was 11 years old. 
uh, afterwards, um, I kind of took the wrong turn. Um, I opened a uh, minor uh, custodian type of uh, brokerage account when I was about 12, 13 years old, and I started day trading. And so I basically lost all of my savings over the course of a summer, uh, listening to CNBC, trying to get like after hours earnings pops and whatnot. Uh, so went down completely the wrong direction. And then after that life experience, um, I started reading everything I could on fundamental investing. So the first thing that kind of stares at you on the face when you go to the library is Buffett. And I think the first book I read was The Warren Buffett Way. Um, after that, devoured everything I could on value investing. You know, uh, we were talking before this, you know, I spent a summer in New York. I took a class at Columbia University. So I really knew I had, I wanted to be an investor by the time I got to college. And so I chose NYU for that reason, because I could get uh, internships while I was uh, still taking classes in the city. I thought it, that would be a great experience. And so uh, during that time, I had also, um, I guess, kind of proven myself over the last couple of years. And so I was lucky that my family trusted me with some of their retirement money to manage while I was still in college. Um, and so I have done that uh, basically ever since then, and I still do manage their money. That's amazing. So how was that experience, though, when you're managing some of your parents' money, and in 2008 specifically? Yeah, um, let's put it this way. It was definitely scary because, you know, it was my first real type of recession or crisis period. Uh, but at the same time, just based on all the training that I had over the last couple of years, just, you know, self-taught really. Um, I had the confidence in my analysis. I had the confidence in the research that I was doing that I knew that the names that I was buying, such as SL Green, uh, were ridiculously cheap. And so even though we, you know, we started buying it in the, called the mid-teens or so, and it dropped all the way to eight bucks, and you definitely have that kind of pit in the bottom of your stomach, right? Like what happens if I lose it all? But I was pretty confident and so, yeah, I, I just say it was a good, uh, definitely a good learning experience. There's nothing like managing real money, especially family money, in order to uh, uh, ramp up your learning curve. Totally. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And talk a little bit about, has your investment strategy kind of changed from that freshman year, Fred, or has it kind of evolved mm -hmm. over time? Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know why, but I... But I, what I found among a lot of investors, especially my own friends, and you know, Alpha Green is one example of that, is that you start off, tend to start off in the deep value camp. You look for these statistically cheap type of companies, or you look for companies trading below net asset value. Um, and then eventually you make your way up kind of the quality spectrum. And as you make your way up that spectrum, it becomes less quantitative and more of an art, more of uh, you know, what are the motivations of the people behind this? And that's how my strategy in my philosophy has kind of evolved over the years as well. Um, I don't think I've, I'm unique. I think Buffett followed the same path. I know many of my friends have followed the same path. Um, yeah, I, I just think that there's more alpha in kind of the, uh, the qualitative side of the strategy than maybe the deep value quantitative statistically cheap type of company side. Yeah, it seems to be kind of a trend. And do you think it was a pretty gradual process or was there a moment where you kind of realized, oh, maybe these really deep value stocks aren't providing me the best opportunities? 
Um, I think it was gradual over time because eventually, you know, because the market in the Deep Valley space is relatively efficient. So a lot of what you're digging through is honestly crap. You're looking for crap with a catalyst. Um, and I personally just wasn't interested in those. I mean, you can definitely make a lot of money in that. Um, but it just wasn't for me. And so I gravitated towards, you know, what are the great businesses that are going to be able to produce 10x in 10 years? And finding those type of companies is far more attractive to me, just intellectually more stimulating uh, than the Deep Valley stuff. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the characteristics of your ideal company. What are some things that you're kind of looking for um, to get those 10x in 10 years? Yeah. I, I mean, let's put it this way. There's uh, you know, I have a presentation on my website about this, but basically there's three ways uh, to make money in public equities, right? Uh, you can really bet on multiple expansion. So that's more based on shorter term, uh, how is sentiment going to change? How is sentiment going to become more positive over next year? Uh, it's almost like a greater fool type of theory. Uh, the second way, dividends, uh, what have you. Um, and you're looking for, to get your capital back. And so the third way is really upon earnings growth. And that's how you find these really great companies. And earnings growth is really a function of reinvestment rate times the uh, return on incremental capital, right? And so what the companies that I'm really looking for are they have such great projects or options for them to invest capital back into that they're going to invest all of the cash that they generate back into the company. And so the question is, what is the incremental return on capital that they're getting on these new projects? Um, and so that's really what we're looking for today. A lot of the companies that we hold in the portfolio are either call it under earning or they have, they are investing the cash flow from one line of business into the other. And so if you were to run a screen on it, um, it, they, they don't really screen very well. Um, they're going to look optically expensive. Um, and there's going to be that question, is this business sustainable? Are they able to eventually generate this cash flow uh, from the investments that they're currently investing in today. Uh, so that's where our edge is, trying to figure out if you know, that is attractive or not. So kind of going off of that, what are some of the qualitative things that you're specifically looking for? Yeah, I mean, qualitatively, it really depends. Um, you know, a lot of our portfolio lies in e-commerce and what that the leading indicators I'm looking for is how sticky is this platform? How addicted are users to this platform? Because if users are addicted to it and come back, call it seven times a day, they're spending 30 minutes to an hour on the platform every single day. That's pretty good, right? Because the, it's kind of like a shopping mall. The more times you go into a shopping mall, you may not buy anything the first time, the third time, the fifth time, but maybe by the seventh time, you'll find something that you like. Um, and so a lot of the leading indicators, like I said, are time spent in the app, how frequently the users open the app. Um, you know, is it actually creating value for, say, if they're a marketplace type of business, are they actually creating value for the sellers who live on the marketplace? Are sellers, are new sellers gravitating towards their platform versus competitors' platforms? Are they making more money on this platform versus the competitors' platform? 
Um, so it really depends on a case by case basis. But you know, for example, e-commerce and especially marketplace businesses, that's what I would be looking for to get me interested. And what are your data sources for all of these kind of metrics that maybe not a lot of people look at? Yeah, um, there's a bunch out there. It really depends. I mean, uh, we've done some custom web scraping work in order to get prices. Uh, you can track order flow, um, in, call it order volumes uh, through these companies as well. Uh, there are different sell side firms that track it as well. Uh, Yip it Data comes to mind. Uh, City has an arm that does it. Um, and then there are a bunch of other platforms such as call it App Annie, Sensor Tower. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of firms that are tracking this type of stuff. Uh, but they just provide the raw data, right? It's your job to kind of interpret what does this data mean and why does this make a platform more attractive than others. Totally. So do you think that your niche kind of this ideal uh, you're saying that a lot of your portfolio is e-commerce companies do you think that you had a natural bent towards that or why do you think that a lot of the companies are in this specific space yeah i just think it's uh honestly it's where my core competency has lied ever since we started hayden um we've had a pretty big exposure to e-commerce um i don't you know where your circle of competence comes from, uh, that's obviously dependent upon each person and unique to each person. And it just so happened that I, uh, I kind of understood these companies best. Great. And kind of going off of that, how do you think about position sizing? Because this is something that I think a lot about because I don't think there's a lot of art and a bit of science <laughs> to it. So just talk a little bit about your thoughts around that. Yeah, uh, like you said, it is an art. Um, I Let's put it this way. It really depends on what type of strategy you're trying to run, right? If you're running a more diversified book with call it 50 to 100 names, obviously your, how you size your positions is going to be much different than say, you know, we have six core positions today. Um, and working backwards, we have a soft rule that we cannot take a position uh, larger than 15% at cost. And so the question is, uh, you know, is this new idea that I'm looking at better than the worst position in my portfolio? And then if so, it, if it is better, is it better than the next worst, the next worst, next worst, and you kind of move your way up uh, the portfolio. And at the same time, unique to uh, the strategy that I run at Hayden is that really we're looking for uh, a lot, oftentimes like inflection points, and we have a thesis for how a company is going to develop, how an ecosystem is going to develop, but uh, we haven't gotten confirmation of that yet. And so often positions will come into the portfolio at say, uh, you know, our minimum size is really 5% to be a real position. It'll come in at 5% and we're really looking for incremental data points that either confirm or deny that thesis. And so if you think about it like poker, right? You get the flop, you get the, you know, river, the turn, what have you. Um, with each new card that comes out, um, your odds of being right or eventually right is likely higher. And so you want to flex your position up within each new data point that comes out that confirms your thesis. So over time, if we are right on thesis, that 5% position is going to make its way up to call it a 15% position. 
um, part of that will be due to stock appreciation and part of that will just be adding to the position. Um, and so most of our companies that have worked out, we've actually averaged up um, on the name. So do you ever take positions smaller than 5%? Do you ever have a starter position? Uh, we actually have two of them in the portfolio right now. Um, they're really, you know, they're like tracker positions. I wouldn't call them starter positions because starter implies that you're going to build on top of it, right? Trackers, I would just say psychologically for me, I know it's helped me kind of, uh, especially if you know there's some sort of catalyst coming to really ramp up uh, your research process and shorten that time frame to really hold feet to your fire, essentially. But, uh, you know, positions smaller than 5%, these tracker positions, they can easily exit the portfolio as well if we find information that kind of goes against our initial thesis. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't, if there's anything under 5% of the portfolio, I wouldn't consider a, a real position. Gotcha. What, just curious, what's the quickest time you've ever went from learning about a company to actually getting it in your portfolio? Uh, to be a real position, uh, usually it takes several months, at least. You know, we may establish a tracker after, say, a month or so, um, but it's going to be called 50 basis points, 1% or something like that. Uh, to be a real position, it generally takes several months of work. Yeah, totally. So just talk a little bit about your process. Is there anything that you do on a daily basis? Like, do you read a certain amount of annual reports? Kind of what is your process for kind of creating the best portfolio you can? Yeah, um, honestly, when I think of the investment process, right, there's obviously the funnel, which is your investment process. You have a name that you're interested in. How do you go take it? from start to it being in the portfolio. You know, that involves, call it, going through every, you know, historical filing of theirs over the last, call it, five, 10 years, what have you, understanding the history of the company, understanding how they got to where they are today, and what is your thesis for them in the future, right? Every stock is essentially a story. Uh, one of my old bosses said, you know, always structure your stock pitches as past, present, and future. And I really like that framework. Um, but on top of that, once you get the background knowledge of the company, uh, we generally start to build out a pretty in-depth model. And the model is really garbage in, garbage out, right? But it's a, I use it as a uh, scratch sheet of paper in order to do our calculations on, which uh, a lot of these things are pretty hard to do in your head. So it's helpful to have it on paper. Uh, after the model is built, which takes about maybe a week, then we're really focusing on where are the incremental uh, opportunities for this company, right? What are they investing cash into? Is the future going to look better, the same or worse than the company's past? Um, and so this might be a new factory that they're building. This might be a new customer acquisition channel that they're going after. Um, it's just where are they putting their incremental capital and then what are the returns on this? Uh, in, in order to calculate that kind of unit economic return, we need data points to feed into it, right? And so that may be going to government uh, sources, that may be going to, uh, you know, art, for instance, for SaaS businesses that sell to the government, they do public RFP, so you can actually Google that. It might be using third-party uh, data, like I said, like App Annie's or Sensor Towers, um, or it might just be good old-fashioned coffee chats with people, 
you know, I recently spent a month over in Asia and a lot of that time was just spent grabbing coffee with people who live in the ecosystem of one of our largest positions, which is C Limited, um, and basically uh, getting anecdotal data points uh, for that. And so it really, it really depends uh, case by case, but that's the general process. And then you still have at the top of the funnel. So how do you even come across an idea that's worth spending time on? And that part is random. I think of it like a bunch of different, it's like chaos above the investment process funnel, right? And each person's is going to be unique, but I found what's most valuable to me, and especially as a small fund, is curating a group of friends who are like-minded, are looking for similar things, and who you can bounce ideas off of. Um, you know, years ago, I read this book and uh, this quote in Phil Fisher's book. Um, basically, he was saying that four-fifths of his ideas came from his friends, but five, six of his profits from his portfolio came from those ideas, which meant that his friend's ideas were actually better than his own. Um, and I think that's 100% true in this industry. What's interesting is that, uh, especially as a small fund, it can be lonely. Uh, you may be kind of living in this bubble and this echo chamber inside of your head while you conduct this research. It's always good to test your theses uh, against other people. And especially if you know people who are short a name that you want to go long. I mean, Twitter is a fantastic avenue for that. Uh, you can kind of message the shorts and be like, what is your thesis here? And have an ongoing debate. Um, I think that is really useful as well. So point is, investing in a lot of its forms is a relationship business as well. And so the idea is to build that network of, uh, of friends and people that you can talk to over time. Yeah, that's a really undervalued thing. So thanks for bringing that up. And you mentioned C. So a while ago, we went back and forth on this. And I think it's a really interesting company. Can you just kind of frame the company and talk about it in the context of what we've been talking about with your investment strategy? Just give us a little background on the company. Yeah, I think it's been almost exactly a year since, uh, since we first talked about it. Um, yeah, so during that time, we had owned it for a couple months then. Uh, we bought it towards uh, the fall of 2018, the last year. And during that time, uh, there, it's become almost a hedge fund hotel at, at this point, which scares me a little bit. But at the time, really no one was paying attention to the company. And what's unique about this company is that people named it as a tech company in the region that is interesting, but most likely not worth investing in. And the, region, and the reason is that they own a uh, division called Garena, which is a republisher of mobile games, primarily Tencent games. It's a very capital-like type of business. They're generating, for the republishing side, they generate about 40% margins. They've done some, uh, they've developed some games themselves, which is 70% margin. Very uh, cash flow generative type of business. And they were doing about 250 million EBITDA uh, at the time. And so if you look at comps out there, uh, a business of this quality should be valued at two, two and a half to $3.5 billion. And the entire stock was trading at around $4.5 billion. And the reason for it was that they were taking all of this cash flow that they were generating on the gaming side and reinvesting it into Shopee, which is their e-commerce marketplace. Stock. And they were building the marketplace, right? Well, marketplaces are like cities. When you build a city from scratch, uh, it takes a lot of infrastructure investment. 
you need to build the subways, you need to, you know, build all the different government functions, you need to, you can't really charge taxes on people because you're still trying to encourage people to move into your city and to live there and conduct transactions there. And so they weren't really charging for any of these services that they were providing for free. Um, and so they were basically optically losing a billion dollars a year at the time. And so the question is, all of this investment that they were taking from Garena, the gaming side, and putting it into e-commerce, like I said, Garena, the gaming side, was worth two and a half to three and a half billion. They were, people were afraid that Shopee was going to get crushed by either the local incumbents in Indonesia, which is Toko and Bukalapak at the time, or Lazada, which was bought by Alibaba a few years ago, uh, and they had invested a total of $4 billion. Well, when you look at the data, right, people spend 25% more time on Shopee's app per user. People open the app more frequently. People were ordering more per month, about four times a month uh, on the app. And it was a fun experience when you just simply talk to the consumers. Um, Lazada was a much more transactional type of experience. You basically, they came from a history of selling electronics, these very high value, easily price comparable type of goods. And so your GMB was very high, but people didn't really stick around on the platform uh, as, a, as a habit. And so all of these indicators showed that you know, just based on pattern recognition, what I've seen worked in China, what has worked in other countries, uh, that Shopee had something here. And so we made that bet um, in the fall. And it was a relatively small position. But, you know, like I said, as with poker, as each new card comes out, each new card that came out showed us that our thesis was correct and that it was actually tracking above our initial expectations. And so over the last... Uh, Last year or so, we've actually increased the position at ever higher prices, um, just because it's far less risky and they've proven themselves and they've taken the lead in, in the market compared to Lazada. And really, um, there are, I'm not worried anymore that they, the competitors are going to overtake them at this point. And so what were those specific markers that you're kind of looking for? Was it the time on the app and you're kind of just monitoring that or is there anything else there? Yeah, so I mean, number of users, how much time each user spends on the app, uh, how frequently they open it per day, how, like, call it from a seller perspective, how many reviews these sellers get versus competitors. Many of these, for instance, many of these sellers that we tracked would list on both Lazada and Shopee, but they would have multiples more reviews on Shopee than Lazada. And it's because Shopee has this unique way of kind of training their sellers in terms of uh, just one example, right? Um, you know, we attended their, their Shopee University, one of their sessions, and they were talking about how uh, you want to respond to females quicker. Female customers are much better because they actually leave detailed reviews uh, for, for your products versus male shoppers may just say, you know, great product, A plus, and that's it. But that doesn't really provide much value, right? And so they had a unique way of uh, training their sellers and educating their sellers, which gave them much higher uh, review count, which meant they drove volume to the seller store on Shopee's platform, which meant higher GMB, eventually higher GMB versus other competitors. 
And so those are the early signs that you're looking for. And when you build a large GMV base, then you can, which is what I consider, um, you know, using that city analogy, the number of transactions that happen within that city, then you can start putting a sales tax on those transactions. And so that's what they have started doing. And when they, when we, when we invested uh, last fall, by talking to their sales reps, we knew that uh, before Shopee did, which indicated that they had no intention of going into a bloody battle with Shopee. Um, so it's these type of uh, data points that we were looking for that gave us the initial conviction. And over time, that has continued throughout. And now they're uh, doing about almost 5% take rates at the moment. Gotcha. And so uh, the big question in my mind was definitely Lazada and just from like United States, not knowing Chinese or anything, I found it pretty difficult to kind of get a good read because people were saying different things and um, it was kind of hard to tell. So just talk a little bit about how you actually dug in to kind of figure out that Shopee was clearly the leader. Yeah, well, even just looking at the culture inside of Lazada, um, you can read reviews on Glassdoor or, you know, other sites, but the culture really deteriorated after uh, Alibaba bought them. So they were historically were a, a rocket internet company, and then they sold to Alibaba in several tranches over the years. Um, and then Alibaba uh, brought in their own uh, CEO, Lucy, Lucy Peng, uh, she came in and ran the company for you know the better part of a year and the problem was that we were hearing anecdotes such as emails uh were coming from the top in mandarin and so you know even on a company specific level the employees were like using google translate to uh, translate these emails into english or whatever the local language was um and then they kicked out lucy right after and then brought back Pierre, uh, who was part of the original Rocket Internet team. But even still, uh, we've heard that he was brought in really as a retention tool to retain the middle-level managers who are ex-Rocket, but most decisions are still being made at a Alibaba headquarters level by Daniel Zhang. Uh, and most of the country-level managers are hired directly by Daniel. Um, and so, you see, you have this problem, this localization problem, right? Shopee really prides itself on being local to each market. They have seven different, seven different apps. Uh, each app is customized for that local country and its shopping habits. Lazada didn't at the time. They basically came in with this idea that, you know, we know what worked for Alibaba, we know what worked for Taobao, and so we're gonna replicate that across Southeast Asia. Well, the problem is Southeast Asia is a hodgepodge of multiple different cultures. And what works in China doesn't necessarily work in Southeast Asia. And then they compounded that with the mistake of bringing in a Chinese manager who had a very authoritative um, management style. And so that really exacerbated the problem. And that really slowed down Lazada's growth. And they've tried to correct some of that uh, over the last year. But really, Shopee has gotten a head start and has hit that tipping point. And I think it's uh, become a bit too late for Lazada to catch up. Yeah, that's really interesting. So obviously you know this business very well. If you were running C Limited, what decisions would you make from the top? Yeah, I mean, I think they're doing a really fantastic job right now. Um, I, I don't know if I could do a better job than what Forrest is doing at the moment. 
I mean, he's built two multi-billion dollar businesses, right? Garena, he really built from scratch on the gaming side. Uh, you know, he was doing it since 2009. And then Shopee, uh, he's built since 2015. And two very distinct and separate businesses. So I don't know if I could do a better job than them. Uh, currently, they just raised a billion dollars uh, in a convert note with a 1% interest rate. Um, and they have 2.3 billion of cash on their books. They're probably gonna keep a, a billion of cash remaining on the books, but they're in the market to buy something. Um, and so my guess is that they are going to, my best guess is that they're gonna buy something in Vietnam. Um, but that's a complete hunch and that's probably the next step for the business. That's really interesting. We'll probably get a press release in four months that sees <laughs> buying something in Vietnam and then we'll point back to this. Um, but hey, we don't want to take up too much of your time. So just one last question. Is there any daily habit that you do that has really contributed to success? Um, honestly, you know, like I was saying before about the network of friends, um, you know, a lot of what I do is just trying to be open to as many people as possible. So if someone asks for a coffee chat um, or if I can help someone out somehow, uh, I try to build that relationship and help them or meet them for coffee. Um, and I found building that network of people, uh, you know, putting that good karma out there really does pay its dividends. In this industry, you never know, um, you know, who's going to be able to help you or where your next idea is going to come from. And so you want to widen the top of your funnel as much as possible. Um, and so I think, yeah, that has really helped me a lot. I usually do multiple coffee chats uh, each week with people. Um, and just building those relationships over time has helped a lot. Wow, that's great. I'm just curious real quick. So how do you balance that and defending your time to do deep research? Is there, uh, you kind of segment off this time for coffee and you're pretty protective mm -hmm. about that or just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think they're one and the same often because often, you know, the people that I'm grabbing coffee with, they have, everyone's an expert in something, right? Um, and so the goal is to really understand what they're expert at and ask them to share that knowledge with you. Um, and investing is great because you kind of get to learn about everything and you never know when these pieces of uh, data are going to kind of connect and string into a thesis. Um, and so I, I think they're honestly one and the same. Uh, you know, I may spend an afternoon doing deep research, but I might also spend the morning grabbing coffee with someone for two hours just talking about, you know, uh, that how the cloud business works or how does their uh, e-commerce business work or how does, you know, an influencer, if they're an influencer, uh, how do they make money? Why do they go into private label, uh, et cetera? So it, it really, it really is one and the same. Yeah. I love that answer. Um, yeah. So thanks so much, Fred. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Glad to do it, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Tuesday and Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. 
and if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.